come in Proverbs to Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15, we'll read verses 1 through 5. Lend your attention, this is God's word. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask that you would prepare us to heed your instruction. And you have promised to reprove and rebuke and to correct and to encourage and to nourish and to strengthen, Lord. And so we ask that you would do that, even now, by the reading and the preaching of your word. That you would prepare our hearts to receive this and... Be encouraged that you treat us as true children. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken gentle words to us. For the Lord Jesus Christ has appeared gentle, meek, mild, a friend of the weak. And this as the true king, perfect in righteousness. And so we pray that even now as we Consider your holy law. Consider how it sheds light on all the dark places of our hearts. Consider how it magnifies the excellencies of our King. How it teaches us, Lord, in the way to go. As that good rule of life in which the Spirit leads us. We ask that you would press these things upon our heart. As only you can, Father. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Come to the Tenth Commandment. Which the Shorter Catechism treats with question 79 through 81. You can find those on page 974. Take up 80 and 81 in a moment, but first, this is God's word. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Question 80 asks, what is required in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment requireth full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that it is his. 
And question 81 asks, what is forbidden in the 10th commandment? The 10th commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. I want to start this sermon on contentment at a strange place, namely that scripture calls us to a holy discontentment, and that this is the first consideration as we heed God's call to be content. There's a holy discontent that sits at the heart of the Christian faith, and this seems to be true for our entire Christian lives, and it's important to start here, because this good longing, this good holy discontentment directed properly keeps us from thinking that satisfaction can come in the things and the circumstances of this world. As we sang in Psalm 63, the world around us is a wilderness, a desert, a wasteland. You can imagine a hungry man becoming so desperate that he tries to fill his belly with sand. But a hungry man doesn't long to have his belly filled with sand. He longs to have his belly filled with bread. And so it's the proper longing which keeps him from the improper pursuit. It is plain in Scripture that there are many gifts that we cannot get enough of in this life for which we must be longing for the entirety of the Christian life. The psalmist sings, my soul pants after you, O God. As the heart thirsts for the brook, one of our metric psalms has it. The Lord teaches us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Paul writes that the entirety of our lives would be one of gradual growth in the knowledge of God's dimensionless love, which surpasses understanding. Peter calls us to continually desire the pure spiritual milk of the word. The author to the Hebrews invites us to consider the city whose architect and builder is God as we come to terms with the hard reality that we have no city here. We seek the one that is to come. All of those, and that's just a sample, invite us to consider that we are prepared to walk this Christian life knowing that it will be one of perpetual longing until we see Christ face to face. And that longing will only be satisfied with the beholding of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing less. Nothing less than beholding God in the face of Jesus Christ will satisfy that longing. 
This is a holy discontentment. This is a holy seeking. And it keeps us from an unholy settling. Like Penelope awaiting Odysseus. None of her imposter suitors will do. It must be the true husband. That's the big picture view of the Christian life, that we're strangers in this world and a constant temptation is to make ourselves at home. We're those who are longing for the true husband, longing to be at home with the Lord. And yet we're constantly tempted by illicit lovers. We're those who live in Babylon, longing for the heavenly Jerusalem, for Christ to return and to bring with him the descent of the heavenly city, the dwelling place of God, such that it is all in all. And this rightly postures us towards this world and the things of this world, the various circumstances attending our lives as strangers in this world. For it's only as we pant for the Lord that we understand that nothing else can satisfy these deepest longings. It's only as we set our minds on the things that are above that the things on earth are rightly seen and understood and thus held in an open hand. It's only as we seek the city that is to come that we discharge our Christian duty to those who have built their hope in this city that is fading away. The author to the Hebrews makes this link explicit. He comes to the close of his letter and writes in chapter 13, verse 5, Let your manner of life be without covetousness and be content with the things that you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We see there the very heart of satisfaction. It's the presence of God with his people. It's pressed home in a pretty striking way there. Because the heart of the covenant promise was, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. But here it's pressed home in an intense way. For he takes that promise and he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's not just that your blessedness is with me, it's that I will never cast you off. I will never abandon you. And that's particularly appropriate to press home to these early Christians who would have been tempted to think themselves forsaken. The situation to the churches addressed in the letter of Hebrews is one of persecution, one of great difficulty. You don't have to read very deeply into the letter to get that sense. And in times of persecution, what, what are we tempted to think? That he's left us. That he has forsaken us. 
The author here presses home not just the covenant promise, I will be with you, and this is the source of your strength, but he presses it home with a vengeance, you might say. I will never leave you or forsake you. (laughs) Such that whatever assails you in this life, you can still meet with poise and equanimity, as it were, (laughs) rooted in the unwavering promise that I fulfill. You can see how that's the bedrock upon which he builds these two exhortations. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, live your life without covetousness. Be content with the things that you have. You've got to press a little bit to perhaps pull out his thinking there, but it's Very similar to what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, if he gives you this, and if you've seen the cost of ratifying this, this promise, I will never leave you or forsake you, ratified at the cost of the eternal word become man, born to die, ratified at the cost of his ongoing intercession on your behalf. He says, if, if I didn't withhold you that, well, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Adam and the lie that he bought. How the tempter of his soul convinced him somehow that I treacherously withheld from him. How the tempter of his soul somehow convinced him that I hadn't dealt with him in abundance, laying the whole garden at his disposal, laying before him a veritable paradise, laying before him not just everything that was necessary for life in the body in which I had made him, but my very presence. And yet the tempter came and whispered and said, he's withholding. He doesn't deal with you out of abundance. You've got to take because he doesn't give. If Adam bought it, certainly we're vulnerable to it. But here in this letter, he says, it's nonsense, beloved. It was nonsense from the beginning, and you saw that in the garden. It's nonsense now, and you see it in the sun. who demonstrates more plainly than the garden that I do not withhold from you. For what is the heart of coveting? It's cherishing the belief that somehow God hasn't dealt well with us, that somehow he's withheld from us, that somehow as a father he's keeping us from the very thing that would result in our happiness. And yet we have ample evidence, even in our own lives, to show that is never the case. We have it in Scripture as the very thing that Adam sought to grab illicitly was far from establishing him in happiness. We have it in our own lives when every time we reach out to take that which isn't ours, that which God hasn't given 
we find ourselves not happier, but the worse. This is what he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't you know I love you? So. <laughs> Don't you know I freely give to you? Don't you know I care for you more than birds? And not even they fall apart from my will. Live your life without covetousness. Be content with the things that you have. Because make no mistake, you are richer than you will ever know. Even if all you have is this promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we learn that we have contained in this promise the wellspring of all of our holy dispositions. This is the wellspring of life, beloved. Make no mistake. This is the wellspring of joy, the wellspring of peace, the wellspring of love, that he has bound himself to us freely through no slight bond. And he is one who keeps his promises. It is the one who is convinced of God's unwavering love and loyalty who can look aright on all the oscillations of this world in terms of the possessions and the circumstances which befall us as that which comes to us from a father's hand. For we see in all of the dealings the actions of a good and wise heavenly father who has already taken us at great cost to be his beloved children. For we look through everything, we look at everything through the lens of the cross, which sees Jesus there standing in the stead of sinners, taking upon himself what we really deserved and giving unto us that which we had no business hoping for, namely reconciliation with God. Peace with the one against whom we had arranged ourselves. It is through this lens that we now view everything. Live your lives such that they are free from covetousness. Bathe yourself in the contentment of the ways of God. And how shall we do this? I trust that your heart can say yes and amen at all of that. And yet, I trust that tomorrow you will be coveting. <laughs> so how do we cultivate this holy frame? Well, first in humility. By setting before us the reality of how easy it is for us to be discontent in God's dealings with us. Even though we have his word assuring us that he only does what is good for us. We have his son assuring us that God has willed our good. We have our own lives as providential testimony of God's goodness poured out freely upon us. How time and time and time again he has led and guided and cheered and comforted. And yet time and time again our hearts rise up in discontent. Do they not? There's humility to be found there. For sin is embedded deep within us, and it takes so little for us to flicker doubt, 
mistrust, grumbling, complaining. I marvel at how quickly my children rush off from the table without saying thank you. How every night they lay their heads in a warm bed. They enjoy lives of remarkable luxury and safety, all without a second thought. Now they're to be excused partly for they are so very young and God's kindness literally wraps them as a world. But what about us, we who are older and who know better, and yet so frequently let such gifts pass without giving thanks, and often cast an eye on things he hasn't given us with suspicion and grumbling? Let us cultivate that humility of heart which receives everything from his hand in gratefulness. Second, by cultivating awe, the fact that he hasn't cast us off, though we are quick to grumble. That none of us perfectly rest in his fatherly care. None of us perfectly rest in his providence. None of us have marked all of the blessings which attend our lives. All of us have let our eyes fall upon his dealings with others with an envious glare, and yet he has not cast you off. Why? Well, we've already read. Because he has promised to never leave you or forsake you. Again and again, he brings you back. Again and again, he refreshes you at the table of his love. Again and again, in patience, he teaches you that he doesn't withhold any good thing from you, that your good is not to be found in circumstances and in things. Again and again and again, he teaches you this because he is infinite in love. It is a dimensionless love without height, breadth, width, length. Third, we look at the things of this world through the understanding of Scripture. We see that all gifts are intended to prompt our hearts heavenward. Every gift that he gives is intended not to be an end, but a means to an end, to appreciate something of his goodness. The embrace of husband and wife, something of his goodness is there evident. The joy of holding a newborn child, something of his goodness, is therein evident. The gift of a community working together on a, pro a project, something of his goodness, is therein evident. Recovering strength, something of his goodness, therein evident. Furthermore, we know that all trials are working something greater in us, whether patience and endurance or retrieving us from illicit desires or building us up to seek our ultimate good, not in this world, but in the world to come. There is fatherly wisdom even in hardship, beloved. This understanding begins to foster a contentment with all of our conditions, be they much or little. And fourth, by considering that our felicity is bound up with our contentment. The one whose discontent is constantly running about from one thing to another. The one who knows that in the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
there is the possession of this world and all worlds beside can rest. They're not driven unto this or that next thing. They're not constantly racing in their thoughts how to obtain because in their possession is all things. To be grasped by faith. The Lord would have us cultivate this contentment in him. It's right there. He would not have us wonder whether we possess everything necessary for life and godliness. He tells us plainly and calls us to rest therein. But he also calls us to look upon our neighbor with charity. We heard that in the Catechism, that it's not just a full contentment with our own condition, it's a right and charitable frame towards our neighbor. You can hear something of this in Paul's instruction to the church in Romans chapter 12. It's a familiar verse, we cite it often. Paul instructs the church, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We've lamented how our perverse tendency is to rejoice at those who weep, and to weep at those who rejoice. It is one of the plainest indications of just how deranged our souls are that we would find pleasure in such things and sorrow in such things. That's humbling, is it not? It shows the illness and the disorderedness of our soul so plainly. But Paul says in Christ Jesus we're being recreated that our souls are becoming ordered such that we're rightly rejoicing with those who rejoice and we're rightly weeping with those who weep, just as Christ weeps with those who weep. Think of the time when he goes to his friends, Mary and Martha, and Lazarus has been dead three days, and he sees the scene of grief, and it's the first memory verse we all committed to memory. John 11.35, Jesus wept. And he rejoices with those who rejoice. He says there's more joy in heaven when a single sinner repents, one who has found life and light. The son returned to his father, a father running out to meet his son, throwing a feast because the son was lost and now he's found dead and now he lives. And so we're being arranged aright to reflect the true king, the true man, our God, our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we're being taught to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. We're in the second table of the law, and so the Lord is cultivating our duties towards one another here. He calls us to think aright not just about our neighbor's stuff, but about our neighbor. It touches not just on our attitude towards his things, but God's dealing with our neighbor. For who has given our neighbor his wife, his house, all that he has? Well, the same one who has given us all that we have. And the Lord who has given unto him has called us not to long for that portion, but to rejoice and whatever portion the Lord has given them. It protects our neighbor's possessions, but it also protects our neighbor's person. It forbids not just jealousy, but the uglier vice of envy. 
Jealousy touches upon the unlawful desire of what you do not have. Envy boils over into the hatred for the one who has what you do not have. Everybody follow that? Make no mistake, James tells us these are satanic impulses. James 3. So once more, we can repent of how near this is to our heart. That we begrudge God's kindness unto others, and it's a hair's breadth of way from actually despising the one who has the things that we want. The standing that we want, the reputation that we want, the abilities that we want, the condition that we want, the things that we want. It's like our heart knows no end of those configurations. Again, we repent of that. It's ugly, beloved. It's so ugly. We have that ugliness within us. How quick we are to see the misfortune of others and sort of sit back and think, yeah, they probably had it coming. I've been suspecting that for a while. We see the gift or the kindness of God unto others, and we think they hardly deserve such a thing. Not like I deserve it. We're slow to view our brothers and sisters through this lens of charity. We're quick to pronounce a judgment that is far more of malice than it is of justice. We're quick to foist grumbling and complaining against our God as he deals with Everyone, according to his wisdom, according to his inscrutable purpose, according to his goodness. It's his prerogative, not ours, is it not? And yet how often we assume that right for ourselves to determine who gets what, when, and why. Shame on us in our pride. Consider the Lord Jesus Christ who had nothing his entire life. <laughs> The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, and yet he begrudged no one anything. He was supported by wealthy women, according to Luke. That would have flipped the world on its head a little bit. We'd, we barely like to hear it. He received from others, though he was the Lord of glory. He was given the cross as everyone stood around to watch, though they should have been up there in his stead. And he stood in theirs. From beginning to end, it was the same thing. He didn't despise what others had because he knew that man didn't live by bread alone, but by every word that came out of the mouth of God. That's what he cited to the tempter when he offered him all worlds. That's what he prayed in the garden as he stood on the cusp of the cup. And in this way, he loved his neighbor, entrusting himself to his father. So Paul calls us to this because Christ has already done this. To look upon his neighbor in charity and a right frame. Rejoicing at the good that comes unto others. Indeed, laboring to bring good unto others. And so Paul calls us into this by reminding us that this is our reasonable worship. 
to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. That's just a flushing out of what he says at the beginning of the chapter. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable worship. We can close by bringing out a few things from that verse. The first is that we have to be urged in this. I urge you, therefore, brothers, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. We see the beauty of it, but there is much ill that is at work in us. Partly the Lord has placed me here to urge you in that, to urge us all in that as I point us to the mercies of God, which is our second point, that such thing is not done by a mere brute force of will. Such thing is done as we reflect upon and take hold of the mercies of God, upon which our entire lives are built and based. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. This is the source of our humility, this is the source of our strength. This is the source of our joy. This is the source of our life. Third, we do this out of a true understanding. Paul calls it reasonable worship. To rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep is reasonable. <laughs> it commends itself surely for the excellence of its course, but that's not enough. It also commends itself as the logical consequence of how God has dealt with us in such kindness. And fourth and last, we're called to rejoice and to weep out of a love for God. That's what Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. The desire is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ doing that which is holy and acceptable to God, not in appearance only, but from the heart. Thus, it must be spiritual worship, for the Spirit alone can generate this reality at the level of the heart. As much as I can appeal to your minds, as much as I can make a case for the excellence of this course, as much as I can trace for you the logical consequence of why you ought to act in such a way, unless the Spirit brings this forth in us, none can go this way. For this is the expression of love towards God, beloved, wrought in our hearts as his love for us is shed abroad. As children, we earnestly desire now to be found holy and acceptable to God in the Lord Jesus Christ in light of the magnitude of mercy that has come unto us. And he calls us, beloved, out of love for him to rejoice with our neighbor's successes, to weep with our neighbor's failures. I have an earnest desire to love one another. May he grant this to us more and more. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do give you thanks for the mercies you have displayed unto us in opening our eyes to the darkness of sin, to the beauty of Christ, to the forgiveness that 
you grant and to the new life which has dawned. Strengthen us in this, O Lord, that we might be encouraged more and more as we take hold of those very great and precious promises and are taught to walk in them. We pray these things in Christ. Amen.